Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Now, today's topic is all about dairy. I know a lot of you have some burning questions as to, is dairy healthy to eat or not? And so my special guest today is Cindy O'Meara, and she's going to help explain that to us. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Cindy O'Meara is a nutritionist, filmmaker. Her uh, documentary, What's With Wheat, uh, came out uh, last year. She's a best-selling author, international speaker, and founder of Changing Habits. Cindy graduated with a bachelor's in nutrition. Her special interest was ancestral foods. After graduating, she became disillusioned by the global, quote, standard nutritional guidelines that she paved her own path. Cindy started Changing Habits in 1990 from her regular newspaper column on nutrition. Her groundbreaking book, Changing Habits, Changing Lives, became an instant bestseller, and from there she has grown a successful organic food company, certified online education program, a groundbreaking documentary, and is currently building a 60-acre organic food bowl, which will be used as an education center for sustainable farming practices. Cindy, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Carrie. So, Cindy, I think it's been about a year since our last interview together, and for the listeners out there, I will dig that podcast interview up and put that link in the podcast notes so that you can listen to that, because on that interview, I spoke with Cindy about her documentary, What's With Wheat, and if you haven't seen it yet, it was just, it's a, it's a phenomenal documentary. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it's now on Netflix, so people can watch it there. It's easy. Oh, perfect. Okay, so there you go. Go to Netflix. And so um, I know you're next, you've got a lot of big projects um, that you're working on. You're a very, very busy uh, woman. And uh, I know one of your next projects that you would like to work on is talking about dairy. So I know you're going to give us some really great information today because so many people are still wondering about dairy. Mm. So can you tell us about the history of milk and how how has it that it that it's gotten to be so pervasive in our diets? Yeah, well you know, the, we, we talk about the history of people's eating and, it, you know, they say we started as hunter-gatherers and then the agricultural revolution came and then the herding society. And and we have been probably domesticating animals for somewhere between ten and 15,000 years. But we had our own herd. We knew where the milk was coming from. 
uh, or we may have made yogurt or um, and that would have been by mistake in the beginning but then it would have worked and then butters and cheeses and but we always had um, raw was probably more often than not and when we look back at the um, Hindu religion they you know they used the animal for its produce they didn't necessarily eat the animal but they used it for its produce and you know there's many beautiful uh, like lassies drinks from milk like lassies and they love ghee which is clarified butter so there were there's a lot of history behind um, us eating dairy now whether that dairy is a cow or a yak or um, a goat or a sheep and now camel milk it depended on you know, where you were living in the world. So if we just look at two cultures that live in the world today that still continue to consume dairy and use it as a major food source, uh, one is the Kyrgyz in P the Pamir of Afghanistan. They live at 14,000 feet. They have yaks. They milk those, those yaks. They ferment into a very, very hard ball, their dairy, so that when the yaks aren't producing, they've still got that production of dairy. They also have rhubarb and spring onion. Uh, they travel and they get wheat and they will make up some bread for their wheat. And on occasion, they will kill an animal in order to eat their meat. So we know because we have this glimpse into their lifestyle, what it's like, and most of their, di their diet is dairy, but it's raw. They know the, the animal. And we can also go to another extreme on the planet, and that's in Namibia. There's a group of people there called the Himbas, and I visited them. And they eat very similar to the Kyrgyz, where most of their diet is dairy. It's fermented uh, they may do a killer every now and then, but it's only in celebration. They have very little foods available to them in the desert region. They may grow corn, but yeah, when you see where they live, you wonder how they can do that. So we have a glimpse into lifestyles of these herders by looking at what we see now. And Cindy, how, how has the quality of our milk changed? It's interesting because I've, I've just done a talk here in Australia and I was, um, I'm in a farming community and a dairy farming community and I was speaking to the, the dairy farmer and, and she was basically saying that, you know, they, they milk their cows, that goes into a truck with another, you know, their, their load of cows is 150, that goes into a truck or a, a big tanker with lots more other cow's milk. That then goes to a processing plant. That then goes into a bigger area. And you may, when you drink a glass of milk, you may be drinking from thousands of cows lactation, basically. You're not just drinking from a herd or one or two, like the old-fashioned house cow or house goat. You are actually drinking from thousands and thousands. And... While I know that this dairy farmer treats her, her, her cattle very well, her, her girls very well, there are other dairy farmers that don't. And you don't know the stress that goes into the milk. You don't know if one of the cows um, may have an infection. Um, one of the things that happens to cows, but they, this is tightly monitored, 
is that they will produce ketones in the milk. And that's when you know the cow is very sick and um, they're usually removed from the herd or um, they're fixed so that they don't have those ketones or they're, they're medicated. So the difference is, is that once upon a time we ate raw, fermented, you know, clarified butters, and now we, we drink milk that's pasteurized, homogenized, ultra-pasteurized, cold-pressed pasteurized. Um, it, you know, it could be low-fat. It could have things added to it. And here in Australia, I could call them revs and shapes. And I go to my milk department. You know, if you go to your milk department in the grocery store, you may see 15 to 20 different types of milk. And it all just comes from one cow and they're just value adding and they're processing it, um, which is, I believe, all adding to this stress that we are putting on our children and adults in having to drink these milks because we've been told that, you know, we should be having dairy because it's high in calcium. And so do you think this is also why we're seeing such an increase in dairy allergies? Well, I think it's part of the issue, but I don't think it's the whole issue. And, you know, we spoke about this on the What's With Wheat um, documentary, and I'm, I'm afraid I have to discuss it here as well because we're still in rural areas with our cattle. So if, they don't, if people don't want weeds, they will spray with a herbicide. And the likely herbicide that they will spray with because it's been, we've been told that it's... Um, there's nothing wrong with it, is uh, Roundup or, uh, or glyphosate, which is the active ingredient. And the latest research on glyphosate is pretty scary. Like we already know um, that it does a lot of um, things like disrupts the shikimate pathway, um, stops us having our amino acids that are needed for our neurotransmitters, um, may cause fructose malabsorption and so on and so on. We, we already know this. But the latest research on it, is showing that uh, glyphosate can actually open the intestinal lining cells um, as gluten does. So it will open it up and a remain, let it remain open. And let's say you're drinking some sort of dairy concoction, whether it be milk or cheese or, or, or something like that, that then will go into the body and cause... Um, an, an immune response by the body. It, it's just th that's what it does because that hasn't been broken down. It goes straight into the, the blood system and an immune response will, will happen. And if you continue to um, drink that milk and there's glyphosate that has been sprayed on the ground and the cow's eaten it, not only is it going into the milk, but it's also going into the bones of the cow uh, and can be released or may stay in there and just be a slow toxin, um, you know, to the animal. We also have to realize that glyphosate is a, a water-based um, herbicide, but it's also an antibiotic. Um, so it's killing the microbiome that's helping us digest our food. It's opening the gates to the gastrointestinal tract. It's severing the communication between the microbiome and our, microbi and our um, mitochondria, as well as we're finding that it's opening the blood-brain barrier uh, and any other um, membrane barriers um, that should be shut and be protecting us from our outside world and the food that we consume. So, you know, that's another reason for it. So not only is it uh, we're 
there are lots of ca- cattle in the food that we're drinking or eating um, or the drink that we're drinking or in the food we're eating. There's lots of cattle in that. There, It's now highly processed. We now have this herbicide that's causing the opening of the blood-brain barrier as well as the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, and... And then we, you know, we these are these are allergens, and one of the allergens which I think you'll find really interesting um, is um, is lactoglobulin. So there's many um, allergens in milk because it's the protein. So it could be casein, it could be uh, lactoalbumin, um, it could be a, a bovine serum albumin. But the one that causes anaphylaxis is lactoglobulin and there's been some research done in Europe where they've found that if that protein has iron attached to it and I'm I'm talking about the mineral iron if that iron is attached to it then it doesn't cause an an immune response and in actual fact the um, the lactoglobulin is the one that causes anaphylaxis in most people if it's going to cause, if, if any protein is going to cause it. But when the iron is attached to it, it doesn't cause that um, immune response. And what they're finding out is it's all about animal husbandry that's allowing either that iron to be on the lactoglobulin or not be on it. So, uh, look, I find this absolutely fascinating. We have to go, I think we are in agriculture going back to our old ways because we realize those old ways were there for a very good reason and we have uh, abused them by um, our agriculture and our animal husbandry and we're starting to see the results in in human health and so to kind of recap some of what you just said i'm so glad that you brought up the glyphosate um, because we had spoken about that on our last interview when we were talking about what's with wheat and um, and so basically the glyphosate has multiple impacts on the body, the big one being that it causes leaky gut, which then has a whole trickle-down effect in the body and makes all, as you said, makes all of your membranes leaky, including the leaky blood-brain barrier. Um, and so that after that point, we see a more rapid uh, neurodegeneration or brain degeneration or brain aging dementia all that kind of stuff and uh and this is really what brings up allergies and autoimmunity as well and so it doesn't really matter if you're eating the glyphosate directly or if you're eating it from an animal that ate the glyphosate right that's right and and we're being exposed to it when you consider how many um million tonne is being sprayed on our lands and our foods and our sports grounds and our verges and everywhere else then um it, and it's water soluble then it goes into our waterways it's in our drinking waters look they're they're finding it um in red wine um i've just come through a wine region i'm like i'm on a tour around australia and i've i've driven from adelaide to a place called Mount Gambia and I went through a very, very prominent wine growing area and what was really interesting is that on one side of the road, the rows looked very neat, tidy and there wasn't a weed in sight. There was no no greenery beneath the vine and on the other side of the road 
was very messy looking with lots of weeds and lots of grass. And, and my assumption is, is that one is using some sort of herbicide and the other one isn't. And when I have been to wineries in that region, I've asked them, well, what's the one you, that you use? And they go, oh, you know, we use glyphosate because it's the, you know, it's the safest of all. It, it only disrupts, you know, a pathway in the bacteria and plants and yeah, it's, it's a bit hard to argue with them because that's what their belief is. Um, but we're finding it in wines. So it's almost like you you need to uh, really be diligent in, in what you're consuming, but more so be very protective of your uh, of, the, of the gut and what you're doing to heal it and, and what um, supplementation you're taking in order to heal it. So on a personal level, I've been off of gluten and dairy since October and I'm really feeling fantastic and Mm -hmm. I didn't realize because it it was a real struggle for years mentally let's say that Cindy a real mental struggle wrapping your brain around um, how to stop eating dairy and gluten and um, and of course kind of going through that uh, well do I really need to uh, it's probably something else. So you go through this whole kind of denial and you're, <laughs> and you know, you, there's this whole self-talk. And, and then I, then I finally just pulled the trigger and I went off of uh, gluten and dairy and also sugar and caffeine and all kinds of stuff. Anyways, feeling great. And uh, I just couldn't believe um, the difference from eliminating dairy from a diet. So now I'll ask you all of the questions that I typically hear from patients. Well, then... What about calcium? Well, you know, because don't we need dairy to get the calcium? And then what about yogurt? Isn't yogurt good for us? Okay, let's first first do the calcium. Okay. So it's always been this myth that, you know, the best source of uh, calcium is to come from dairy. But the, the countries in the world that eat the most dairy have the most amount of osteoporosis. So if we look at an association, that's what we see. And once again, I'm going to go back to tribes that still exist today that um, live in places where they don't eat dairy. So we could go to Tanzania and we can go to the Hadsas and, in, and the Hadsas only consume um, meat and any game size that they want from mammal right down to bird and they eat very tuberous um, root vegetables. And if there's berries around, they might get some berries, but that that's basically what they eat. Yet they have no signs of osteoporosis and they, um, you know, they live up until the age of 80. So the whole thing with the, the calcium coming from, you know, dairy, yes, it's got calcium, but do we absorb it as well as a, if we absorb a food um, that is high in calcium? And any food that is grown in calcium-rich soils will um, give you that calcium. Um, you know, and when, you know, when you do bone broths, you know, everybody expects calcium to come out of the the bones and it should be high in calcium, but it actually isn't. So bones and bone broth isn't probably our our best place to find it. But just by eating foods that um, have had a soil that's rich in calcium, you will will get the calcium through your plants. Um, So that's that one. And now let's talk about yogurt. So most of the yogurts out there are... 
um, filled with additives and colors and sweeteners and I, I've actually tried to make yogurt from them just to see if the, the culture's alive and I've never been able to do it. So I think they must pasteurize it after they've cultured it and kill it so it doesn't keep, um, you know, fermenting. But I, I have also really studied yogurts and there are some amazing um, people around the world who have a love for making the traditional yogurts. And I remember getting a, a culture from my aunt from Lebanon. And I had that culture for years and years and years. This was back in the 80s. And I had that culture for years until my thermos, and these were the days when the thermoses were glass, until my thermos broke and I, and I lost that culture. But those are the ones, those old traditional cultures uh, that some companies have continued to um, make and one of them is an Italian company uh, in um, Como, near Como and it's called Seiko and they actually continue that old tradition of getting those, um, there's only two that the only two bacteria that they use, you know, they, they heat the milk, they take out all the other bacteria and then they just replace it with uh, lactobacillus and acidophilus and they just put that in there and it makes the most amazing uh, yogurt. So the yogurts that you find in the grocery store are nothing like these traditional yogurts that I've just been speaking about. The yogurts that are found in the grocery store usually have guar gums and thickness and colours and sweeteners and, and everything and flavours. Whereas the one I'm talking about is that we're taking that milk from one cow, whether or goat or camel, and we... We heat it to a point to destroy any other bacteria and then we inoculate it back with bacteria. So it all depends on where you're getting your yogurt, put it that way, or if you're making it yourself. Um, I've also had similar conversations with patients. Um, patients also that um, are in the Hindi culture or uh, mm -hmm. in the Greek culture and, and their, their yogurt um, starter, that just like you said, it's handed down from generation to generation. And they, they've all said that they've never been able to buy yogurt from the grocery store and make other yogurt with it. So essentially the yogurt that you buy from the grocery store, although it says right on the label, contains live bacterial cultures, really doesn't. Because like yeah. you said, it, it's been pasteurized after. They must be doing something because I can't make it, it, I can't make any cultures from those ones, and I could name a few uh, brand names, but um, but basically General Mills yogurt um, is not I don't it's not live the YoPlay yogurt I, I mean and it's not it's not true yogurt it's almost like we've left the traditions of this you you have to realize that there are cultures out there that that was their way of fermenting a food was to create a culture. And then uh, we use the, you know, basically the, the ground. So I look at when we're cooking, we use fire, we use, uh, that's our barbecues. <laughs> we use water, they're our broths. We use um, earth or water, I've said water, we use heat and that's our baking. And then the last thing that we use um, is the ground and we use the, the cultures out of the ground to make these ferments. So... Yeah, the old traditional yogurts, I don't have a problem with. But 
living in the city, you can't find these things always. It's it's not always easy. So the easiest thing to do is just go off the dairy uh, until you maybe can tempt your body with it again and see if your body can can handle it. And with the rate that we have, um, you know, leaky gut and interstitial um, issues, I'm not really sure that many people are going to be able to handle um, this, you know, the dairy. And the other question that everybody's asking me at the moment is, well, what about the A2 milk? So there's a real, I don't know if in America, but in Australia and New Zealand at the moment, there's a real push to make all cows A2 milk and get away from the A1 milk. So, because so what, I, is, what is A2 milk? Because I've not seen that in North America. Ah, so A, A1 milk is, a, a, is produced by certain cows. Um, and it was kind of maybe a hybrid in the European cows. But A2 was always traditionally, so it's a casein we're talking about, which is a protein. And when we have a look at A1, um, the A1 protein of casein, um, what we find happens is that uh, it creates a caseomorphine, whereas the A2 doesn't create the caseomorphine in the body. And when I say morphine, it's like a a drugging, and it, it has been linked to sudden infant death syndrome. Um, you know, there's not strong evidence there, but it has been linked to it. Other things that they're linking to the A1 beta casein um, is that it, it causes um, type 1 diabetes, autoimmune diseases. Um, it's, it's showing that it inhibits gastric transit um, of food, which means you may get constipation with it. Um, it increases inflammatory markers within the gut wall. And um, what they're finding is that it um, sets off the TH2, which is our immune system response, TH2 cell production. So what they're trying to do is move more cattle to the A2. Now, goats are mainly A2. Uh, camel are A2. There are certain breeds of cows that are A2, and they've... They believe that that is far better for human health than the A1. So as well as all the processing, the glyphosate, we also have a hybridized cow and not genetically modified, just a naturally hybridized cow that is producing more and more um, of this protein, which is causing these health issues across the board. Now, the science is growing. It's it's just starting, but it's growing. And there's a real push by... Um, a gentleman who's a veterinary doctor in uh, New Zealand in order to really push everything towards the A2. So, you know, we've got to consider that. But I look at A2 milk um, in Australia and New Zealand, and I don't know if it's going to hit America, but I look at it and it's still pasteurized, homogenized. There's still lots of cattle. We don't know. That's not organic, you know, so we really don't know what the ramifications of A2 was going to be. So thank you for explaining that, and um, that's something that I'll keep my eyes out for if that ever does come to North America. <clears throat> so let's kind of go back and talk about, okay, so our, our listeners have a, a fairly good idea, I hope, at this point of why dairy is bad, and maybe they're starting to wrap their head around, you know, well, what does that mean in my day-to-day -day life? Um, what do I eat instead of dairy? So mm. can you talk about that, the the dairy um, kind of the substitutes that we typically see for dairy that are out there? 
Yeah, um, I have seen a lot of substitutes uh, for dairy, and I would say 80% I wouldn't touch, but there are 20% that are okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's talk about um, what would you not touch? <laughs> Cause, yeah, because when, when you look at the ingredients, it will shock you. And then which? what are the 20% that are the good? Yeah. Okay, so let's start with cheeses. So vegan cheeses, I've seen a lot. And I've seen the, the additives that they use. It's not hardly – it's not real food. There's, um, you know, isolated proteins and there's additives and there's flavors, there's natural flavors and there's foods that are tested on animals. And I don't understand why they call it vegan cheese because I just get, I just look at it and I go, no way, this, a vegan could not eat this because it's not even real food. So that's one substitute. But the other one is um, milk substitutes. So we're seeing a lot of moo-less milks. So we're seeing almond and macadamia and soya and across the board all the nuts and seed milks. Now, if I was to make a nut and seed milk, I would soak my nuts or my seeds overnight and then I would rinse it off and then I would put more water in it and then I have a, a machine called a Thermomix. I would put it in that Thermomix, which is probably like a Vitamix, and I would grind it down as as much as I could and then I would put through a nut bag and I would be left with the milk of a nut. <laughs> but these days, because it's so expensive to do that, that milk, um, non-moo milk um, manufacturers, what they do is that they might use 2% almond for almond milk and then the rest will be thickeners and flavours and salts and... Yeah, and then they add calcium to it because they think everybody needs calcium in their milk and it's calcium carbonate, which is limestone, so you might as well go lick your rocks. So it's just, the you know, but there are some out there that I, I do like. I have seen some on the market that uh, it would be something that I would purchase, but I'm more likely not to because I don't know where those nuts and seeds have come from. I don't know if it's not organic, then I don't know you know, if glyphosate has been sprayed um, throughout the nut um, orchards, which I know they are, you know, South uh, Northern America, I think it is, Northern America, Northern California um, has become the biggest almond growing area. And, you know, in order to keep weeds down, they've got to be using something. So you ne you don't know what's happening there. So those are, that's those ones. Um, I have seen some like cashew milk, cashew cheeses, which are absolutely beautiful. I've looked at the ingredients. They're not trying to fake cheese. They just call it cashew cheese. So they're pretty good. Um, what else have I seen on the market that's, um, oh, what about the butter versus margarine? Okay, so I was at a vegan restaurant the other day um, and I just, I, actually it wasn't a vegan restaurant. There was just something on the menu that said it was vegan and I said, well, what's a vegan egg? And so she explained it to me and I said, well, can I see the ingredients? And so she brought that out and I said, and what about, the hollandaise sauce you know it should have egg in it what does it have in it and it should have butter in it what does it have in it and she said oh we put margarine in it so people are using margarine as an alternative to butter yet when we look at the checkered history of margarine and the it's a totally refined food with natural flavors synthetic vitamins fillers and diglycerides and colors you just gotta wonder 
what people are thinking when they do that. I, I would rather see somebody, if they're not going to eat butter, eat ghee. Now, ghee is something that the Hindus have eaten for a long time and what they do is that they make butter, then they warm it and there's a foam that comes on the top of it. They scrape that foam off. Now, that's all the dairy components and you're left with an oil, like a butter oil. It, it would be very similar to... Um, so, so because it goes hard at room temperature, it's got saturated fats in it, but it also has omega-3s, it has butyric acid, and it has all the components that help your gut heal as well as giving you the um, information um, for your genetics in order to upgrade um, to making ketones um, or um, downgrade in order to use that um, those ketones and not... Um, you know, and not use sugars that are in the diet. So, you know, I, I, I struggle with all these alternatives. So, look, if you're going to go off dairy, just go off dairy, make your own, um, you know, mooless milks. <laughs> Maybe try um, camel. It's becoming very popular here in Australia. Maybe try goat and see if you don't react to it. But make sure it's an organic small herd that you get direct from your supplier as opposed to it going through commercially. Do, do, can you think of any other alternatives, Carrie, um, that I have? Yeah, the only other one about? that um, you didn't mention was uh, soy. And I know people still have a lot of questions about soy. Is soy good or not? Mm. And in men, what about men? Is that going to make, you know, is that going to give them estrogen? Yeah. Well, we do know that, you know, it does have phytoestrogens in it. And if we look at, the um, soya milks and the tofus and the tempehs out there. And if you have a look at how the, the Japanese so painstakingly produce these, they are nothing like what I've seen um, in the grocery stores. So let's start with soy milk. So if you taste soya milk that is fermented and made um, in Japan, it's actually very woody tasting. It doesn't taste like the soya milk that I've tasted around. And to eat or to drink a lot of that, yes, you've got phytoestrogens in there and, and you have to be very careful of it. And they're finding that these phytoestrogens are concentrating when we do a powdered soya milk or we give soya powdered soya milk to our babies. Um, Marian Nigg, Dr. Marian Nigg, very early on in the piece was saying, do not feed your babies soya-based um, dairy products or dairy products, um, infant formulas, because um, of the amount of phytoestrogens in it. And she, I can't remember the exact amount, but she said it's like giving them a, a pill, you know, the, the, the pill, I should say. It's like giving them one of those. So, and for men and even women that are going through menopause, it's probably not good for them. And then um, if you look at the, the tempehs and the uh, tofus uh, that are made from soya, they would have been fermented and they, they would have painstakingly through culture and tradition figured out exactly what they needed to do in order to make it safe for male and females that were eating it. And you also look at the diet and they do not eat a lot of tempeh or tofu or soya milk. I think that I, I did a survey on this um, as to how much the Japanese actually eat of this of soya and it's less than 6% of their diet. So when you look at somebody who's given up dairy and 
and maybe become a vegan even and using tempeh and soya and also using um, soya milk and anything else that's out there like TP, TPV, is it TPV? Textured protein, um, vegetable protein, TVP. Yes. So, it, yeah, those things. And, and it, I think you're overloading yourself with, with that soya. And you have to also be careful. Is it genetically modified? Has glyphosate or Roundup been sprayed on it? Uh, is canola oil added to it? Has that also um, Roundup been sprayed on that? And is that genetically modified? And I'm probably, you know, people are probably listening to this going, oh, my gosh, is there anything safe out there? Well, I think what you have to do is you have to educate yourself about your local community. Go to your local local farmers markets, talk to the farmers, talk to the growers, find out what people are doing. And there are some beautiful boutique um, food producers that are at the farmers markets that produce beautiful moonless milks and the and traditionally instead of um you know the way that we see it commercially because then it's it's viable in a commercial setting um whereas it's very viable in a a person who's making it right to the person who wants to buy it it's viable in that uh, in that setting of a farmer's market and and that's what i say is go back to our old ways get back to buying locally as much of, of your produce as you possibly can. And then for those foods like salts and and perhaps sugar and, you know, foods like that we use like spices and I'm trying to think of or maybe even olive oil and things like that that you can't get in your local community, then find the best sources for those. And then you come home and you make beautiful nitrate-free bacon and eggs um, you, you could have a, a salad on the side for lunch. You could have your leftovers from the night before and then dinner becomes a wild-caught salmon with some sweet potato and a salad. And it's not hard. And there's no dairy in that. It's delicious. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, um, it will give you amazing nutrition um, as well as, as eating the vegetables and the salad, you're feeding your microbiome, which will then help you produce B vitamins and folic acid and your aromatic amino acids for your neurotransmitters, your enterobactin to carry your iron. So when we do this, our body um, is is listening to the food that we're consuming and it knows what to do because this is an evolutionary body. And when you feed the body evolutionary foods your body knows what to do with them it's it's the science of nutrigenomics it's the science where we know that that food that we consume upregulates or downregulates your dna your genetic potential is not about the genes you've been given but the food that you consume nutrigenomics your epigenetics the environment you're in and your metabolic i always say this i have to say this really well meta Bellomics, <laughs> genomics. It's it's the metabolites of the microbiome that lives within you that also speaks to your DNA. This is this is what we're learning. Give it the right resources, and your innate intelligence of your body will do the right thing by you. Cindy, again, you have shared so much valuable information on our interview today. Um, please let me know when your next documentary is ready because I would love to share that with my community. I will. Cindy, how can our listeners find out more about you? 
Well, they can uh, watch uh, What's With Wheat on Netflix in North America. Uh, that's a really easy way to learn um, about my journey um, with wheat. You can also go to my website, um, and that I live in Australia, so it's changinghabits.com, and then for Australia, you put .au, so changinghabits.com.au. And for any professionals out there that are wanting to increase their knowledge on nutrition, I have a registered training organization where I teach uh, functional nutrition. Um, we do the fundamentals and the applied. And in order to find out more about that, you can go to F for functional, N for nutritional. So FN.academy. And you can learn everything um, that you need to know about um, helping other people make these changes in their lives and understanding um, the food system and what they're doing and how they are just causing untold um, illness amongst um, many of the population. So for the listeners out there, I'll make sure that all of those uh, links are in our podcast notes online so that you can easily find Cindy and all of her valuable resources. Cindy, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been another awesome interview. Thank you. All right, this wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Cindy O'Meara. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.